check, check, coming through. Okay, good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Hope you grabbed a bulletin on the way in or you logged onto the app. On there will be your order of service and the lyrics for the songs we'll be singing this morning. Um, if you grab the bulletin, there's also our connect cards inside. If you have anything you need to communicate to me, prayer requests, etc., you can just fill that out and drop that in the offering box that's on the welcome table on your way out this morning. Um, like every Sunday, we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper and then the sermons. So if I can get your elements now, if you're participating in that. Um, by way of announcements, uh, this morning was the last of our learning cohort, the six-week study. Um, I'll be teaching the same lesson Wednesday night on Facebook Live, but uh, don't show up next Sunday at 9 o'clock. I mean, I might be here setting up. We actually can come set up, um, but there won't be a lesson. Uh, I mean, I could make something up on the spot, but I'm not planning a lesson at 9 a.m. next Sunday. <laughs> Though, what we are doing next Sunday, I sent this out in an email on Friday, um, we are doing a taco bar at my house next Sunday night at, what time? Are we 5.30? I forgot what time I put down. 5.30! I mean, we live there. We're going to be there anyway, so just show up. Um, 5.30, it'll be taco bar. We'll have corn tortillas, flour tortillas. Uh, we'll have chicken. We'll have all the kind of traditional taco sides for you to just bring yourself. We've got seating as well, so you can bring a chair if you like to have a special chair, I guess. Um, <laughs> we'll have seating. Just show up. We'll be in the backyard. The weather should be fantastic. Um, and, yeah, no agenda. It's just let's get together and let's enjoy each other's company. So very excited about that. Um, and we're hoping to have that a number of times this fall and get back into the rhythm of being together with each other, not just in worship on Sunday, um, but to get in each other's lives more regularly again. Carving out space for us to be together and uh, enjoy each other. So. With that said, we're not here for announcements, um, but those are great. We are here to worship Jesus who is worthy. So take a moment now to prepare your hearts before we hear the call to worship together from John 1 and 2 Corinthians. Brothers, I invite you to stand if you're able, and you'll see in your bulletin that we are called to worship this morning from God's Word. Words from John chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, and 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Hear this call. In Jesus is life. That life is the light of all mankind. He shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome him. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, make his light shine in our hearts. To give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now this morning in a world that is so characterized by darkness. Great relationships characterized by hostility. We live in a world that doesn't work the way it's supposed to. But we come in hope because you have broken into our darkness with the light of Jesus. And so we respond this morning coming to you. I pray in this hour, as we pause and reflect on your grace, on your truth, that you would reform our hearts, God. Move upon us by your spirit to conform us to your image. Make us more and more like you. 
Call us to life to respond. Make our praises this morning beautiful to your ears and encouraging to our hearts. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning we're going to be singing a new song for us. Every praise is to our God. I think we'll pick, on that, pick up on that pretty
We come to a time where counter to the busyness of our world, counter to the impulse we have to put our best face forward, even if that means a false face, that we stop. And in this time of confession and assurance, we pause and quiet our hearts before the Lord to come to Him with the worst that we have in confidence that we will not be turned away. But even now, in the things that we carry, even now in our sin, we are loved by Him. And He is in, at work to free us from the power of sin over us. I'm going to lead us into a, a time of prayer. And there will be a moment for you to confess your sins to the Lord. But as I say often, we are not heard because we can enumerate every wrong thing we've thought, said, or done. We are heard in the grace of Jesus. And so as we come to Him, this is like coming to a doctor. Someone who can do something about what ails our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in this moment. We come to you as people who in so many ways fall short. In so many ways we disregard you and we run from you. And we chase after things to satisfy our hearts that can never satisfy us. In so many ways we disregard others that are made in your image. We live in hostility with other people. We think the worst about others, especially those who disagree with us. We treat them with contempt instead of seeing in them your image that gives them inherent dignity and honor. Lord, in so many ways, we disregard ourselves. We believe lies about ourselves and we tell lies about ourselves. We who are loved in you. So I pray now, Lord, as we confess our sins against you, against others, against ourselves, that you would hear our confession and that you would seal to our hearts not condemnation but your grace. Speak to us as we hear the words from 1 John 1 in just a moment. Take a moment now to confess your sin to the Lord. Amen. Hear this good news from 1 John. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Let's sing together, the Lord is my salvation.
So they're going to send their deputies, almost like the temple police, to go arrest Jesus in secret. They don't, but they don't want to do it out in the open. That doesn't work. And so what they do next is what we talked about last week. They lay a trap for Jesus. They say, we're going to find somebody who's doing something wrong. And Jesus has shown himself to be compassionate, very compassionate. And he's shown himself to be somebody who cares really deeply about what's right. So we're going to find somebody doing something wrong. We're going to put them in front of Jesus, in front of everybody. So not they're not going to arrest him in secret. They're going to try to make Jesus look foolish in public. And so they bring this woman that had been caught in an act of adultery in front of Jesus. And they're expecting either he's going to show himself as not as compassionate, or he's going to show himself as someone who doesn't really care about what's right. What Jesus does is give them a third answer that they didn't expect. He tells them that they are fundamentally disqualified from being able to pass judgment on this woman. That they are hypocrites, the religious leaders, that they hold up a standard for other people that they don't follow themselves. And so they're not qualified to pass judgment on this woman. And what does he tell her? He who is qualified, he does not condemn her. He forgives her. And then the word of grace sets her free. So, their attempt to arrest him in secret has failed. Their attempt to lay a trap for him in public has failed. And they've been exposed. In a sense, they look very embarrassed. So what comes next is the aftermath of them looking foolish in public, in a sense. And so here, they take a third approach. They take all the, the brakes out of the way and they just go after Jesus straight up. So that's what this back and forth is. The religious leaders are frustrated, they're embarrassed, and they're coming for Jesus. Alright, that's enough background. We'll start in verse 12 of chapter 8. This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and we've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be free? Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you're free indeed. I know that you're Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in my father's presence. And you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own, God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father in the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. The Jews answered him, Are we right in saying you're a Samaritan and demon possessed? 
I'm not possessed by demons, said Jesus, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. And this is they exclaim, now we know you are human possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say whoever obeys your word will never, never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim is your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it, and he was glad. You are not yet fifty years old, they said to him. You have seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple of grass. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this, uh, this passage of scripture. As hostile as it is, these hard words back and forth between Jesus and the religious leaders. I pray as we reflect on them that you would reveal our hearts to ourselves. More importantly, reveal the beauty of Jesus to us. That we might turn to Him and find our grace, find our spiritual nourishment, find Him all we need. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, have you ever been in an argument with someone, and in the middle of the argument, you realize that they're wrong? If you're in the process of making your case, and it hits you in your mind, like, oh wait, I'm wrong. But instead of being like, no, I'm wrong, you double down. <laughs> Kind of double, well, it, 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 instead of admitting you're wrong, you just double down in your wrongness. Here's a good example. This happened a few years ago, and I got permission from Angela to tell this story. Um, so we were watching TV. This was years ago. And the show How I Met Your Mother had just come out. It had just become really big. Character Barney was played by Neil Patrick Harris. Neil pa Patrick Harris is a very famous actor. He's been a famous actor since he was a kid. If you're my age, I'm 38, you'll remember he was in a show called Doogie Howser MD. So we're watching the show, and I said to Angela, I said, this guy's funny. What else have I seen here? And if you know anything about Neil Patrick Harris, he looks exactly the same now as he did when he was a kid. He, you look at him at Doogie Howser. I said, what have I seen here? Angela's like, are you serious? That's Doogie Howser. I said, no, it's not. That is not Doogie Howser. Him, are, are you serious right now? That, look at him. That's Doogie Howser. I said, that's not Doogie Howser. I've never seen, I've seen that guy in something, but I can tell you for sure that is Doogie Howser. She said, that's not Doogie Howser. She said, yes, it is. And I said, Angela, trust me. I've seen way more TV than you have. I would know that that's Doogie Howser. Anyway, she's like, okay, we're going to solve this. Pulls the computer out. Google shows me the IMDb page. I'm like, oh, well, yeah, <laughs> absolutely is Doogie Howser. But in my mind, I was like, no, Daddy, he looks different. His hair is different. And anyway, it just became this long thing where I was standing in my wrongness, and I was refusing to admit, like, no, you are right, and you are clearly right. You are clearly right. In our passage today, Jesus is interacting with the religious leaders, his Pharisees. 
There were religious leaders in Jerusalem, and as I talked about before we started, they're very frustrated and embarrassed right now. They had laid a trap for Jesus. He slipped through the trap. And, and revealed in front of everybody their hypocrisy. They had tried to arrest him in secret. He slipped past, and the, 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 the temple guards wouldn't arrest him. They wouldn't do it. So they're, they're frustrated. They're incredibly frustrated. But Jesus has slipped these traps. They're embarrassed that they've been shown to be hypocrites in front of people. And what they do here, in the face of being shown to be wrong, they do what a lot of people do. They double down in their wrongness. But what we see in this passage is Jesus continues to shine his light. He shines his light in the previous passage and showing them the hypocrisy of their own hearts that would seek to condemn a woman that's caught in sin instead of speaking a word of grace to her. He continues to shine his light here in the midst of their, uh, their obstinance, in the midst of their doubling down and their wrongness. But first, before we get into that, let's talk a little bit more. I, I won't repeat myself from previous weeks of all about the Feast of Tabernacles, but this is one of the big festivals of the year. It's the biggest celebration and one of the biggest ceremonies that would happen in the week that the people were there. One of the key things in the festival was this light ceremony that would happen every night. And so that what they would do at the end of the day, in the afternoon, they would light these four huge oil lamps that were in the temple courts. And the temple was at the highest point of the city. And so they would light these big oil lamps, and it would illuminate the entire city. And this was, you know, before electricity. So this was a big deal. It was like every corner of the city was now illuminated by these huge lamps. And worshipers would sing and dance pretty much all night, join in with instruments. Like a big rave. The party would continue all night. And in this, this festival, the, the imagery that was going on, it was celebrating how God had led his people. It was using the imagery of light to show how God had led his people thousands of years before out of Egyptian slavery into freedom, into being a nation called by God. How he had continued to lead them in what was right and what was good. That's what they were celebrating. God's light breaking into the darkness of our world. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, he's here. This is the last day of the festival. He says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So that's some of the context. He wasn't just pulling that out of thin air. That's kind of what was going on in their head. They just spent a week with the, <laughs> the lights never turning on, essentially. New York, the city that never sleeps. Jesus saying, I'm the light of the world. What had happened is Jesus had just exposed their hypocrisy. But he's telling them here that he's not just a guy that was trying to make them look foolish. In exposing their hypocrisy, he wasn't trying to one-up them. He's not angling for power, trying to take their position. He's the shining light of God's glory come into this world specifically to free them from darkness. This passage to speaking to these religious leaders is not Jesus just trying to one-up them, make himself look better in front of the crowd. He is offering an invitation to them. I'm shining light, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now there's some more discussion after that that I actually didn't print in the bulletin, but the, it's the Pharisees repeating things, objections they had said earlier in the Gospel of John that we had touched on in, previous, in a previous sermon. And it's things that Jesus had already addressed. They're repeating arguments they had made chapters earlier, or even in 
in the timeline of the gospel, John, a year early. It's almost like they get frustrated and they think, if I just repeat myself, it'll make it true. If I just keep saying it's not Doogie House or another Doogie House. <laughs> and it picks back up here in our passage, what I've printed for us in the end of verse 31. And Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciple. Then you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. This is Jesus saying the same thing he just said about the light, but with a slightly different image. The shining light of his teaching is an open door to them to leave the darkness and know the truth. They would have said they were people that were committed to truth. Jesus is saying, if you really want to know the truth, come to me. Not just facts. I will not just give you true things like 2 plus 2 equals 4. I will reveal to you a truth that will free you from the darkness that you live in. The path you're on now will only lead to destruction. But this leads to the Pharisees doubling down in the wrongs, to this invitation of freedom. These men whose hypocrisy had just been exposed, they fall back on some of the places of the pride. And I didn't do this in the Doogie House. Well, I kind of did when I told Angela that uh, I'd seen way more TV than she had. I'm definitely the daughter of Peter. They fall back on some of the places of their pride, places of pride that actually might feel familiar to us in our culture. And we'll talk on touch on a couple of them here. The first one's this. They try to fall back on their heritage. Or, uh, in modern terms, they try to fall back on their last name. They try to pull rank. Did you notice it? Look at verse 33. Jesus has just offered them freedom, and they, they answered him, we're Abraham's descendants, and we've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say we shall be set free? Offered, Jesus has offered them freedom from the things that is tearing their hearts to pieces. And what they say is, do you know our heritage? Do you know the pride that we have and who we are? We're Abraham's descendants. This is the same kind of mindset you see it on playgrounds when kids are like, my dad can beat up your dad. It's, it's falling back on some weird kind of thing. Or, or I, I saw it in my own heart a few years ago. I've mentioned this before. I, I signed up for one of those free weeks of Ancestry.com. And I stayed up for like four in the morning, a couple nights in the road, just clicking through that little leaf that pops up and tells you, like, here's another thing. I kept going until I found, like, historical names I could recognize. King Henry VIII. And I've told you this story before. And if I'm honest, when I saw that, I was like, look at me. I'm the 14th great-grandson of an uh, illegitimate son of King Henry VIII. And when I told people about it, honestly, I wanted people to, to hear it and say, you know, that's, that's cool. That regular Tim there that I know. Of course, there's thousands of us that are back in there. But anyway, what I'm saying is they, I tried to fall back in that. It was tugging at my heart to say, well, I can grab some significance somewhere. If I can find some significance in my background, in my heritage, in my last name, I can grab a hold of. And that can make me feel like I'm important. Make me feel like I have something to latch onto. Or, like the Pharisees here, they reach to this to prove to Jesus that they don't need help. They don't need truth. They don't need grace. They're Abraham's descendants. You know who we are. So what does Jesus say? He tells them that their heritage, their badge of pride, it doesn't mean much because what? They're trapped in their own selfishness. As he says in verse 34, they're slaves to sin. So much good that heritage does. You're trapped as a slave to sin. As he says in verse 37, they're descendants of Abraham. So what? Your heritage isn't doing much good because you're so, you know, it's sin to the point that you're trying to kill Jesus. 
Some good that heritage did. Some good that last thing does. That they're, they're opposing Jesus. They're trying to snuff out the light that has come into the world. So what about that last name? What Jesus is saying here to them, don't slink back into the darkness. Your hypocrisy has just been exposed to the shining light into this situation. My grace entering into this situation where you were trying to condemn this woman caught in sin. As this light shines, religious leaders do not slink back into the darkness. You're not just hypocritical in some ways. The issue isn't that you're just somebody who messes up here and there. You are a slave to sin. You are trapped. You are trapped. But the good news is, as he says, the Son of God is here, and I'm not a slave to sin. And if I set you free, you will be really free. Not just with a some heritage to grab hold of. I'm Abraham's descendant. No, the Son sets you free. You will be truly free. He can break in and do this. Jesus is the Son who's come with freedom. But verse 39, they say it again. Look, Abraham is our father. And he says, if you were Abraham's children, you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you're looking for a way to kill me. A man who's told you the truth I heard from God. Abraham would not do such things. And then Jesus says something interesting. You're doing the works of your own father. Now what Jesus is saying here is the concept of the son of. At that time, and even today, if you say someone is the son of, it means that they act like that person. I remember when I was a kid and I'd do something that was characteristic of my dad. Mama said, you are the son of your father. Right? That, just, that didn't mean literally, because I was always the son of my dad. <laughs> it just meant in that moment, I am embodying some characteristic of who my dad was. That's what Jesus is saying here. It's a claim on character. To be the son of someone is to be like that person. Not just connected to them, but like them. And so he's saying here, your claim to be sons of Abraham is useless because you're not showing yourselves to be sons of Abraham. We won't get into it, but in Genesis, Abraham's not a perfect man. Not at all. He's a very flawed, incredibly flawed man. But when he was faced with his own failure, he didn't slink back into darkness. He turned to God and faith. He depended on God to declare him as righteous, and he didn't depend on his own words. We see that in the story in Genesis. Jesus is saying, I'm on the scene shining God's light into this world, and when that happened to Abraham, he turned toward God, and he didn't slink back on, this is my dad. This is my heritage. He turned to God in faith. Jesus is saying, I am here. If you're truly sons of Abraham, come to me and find your freedom. But what you're doing is showing that you aren't sons of Abraham. You're sons of the devil. And it doesn't mean literally. It's not like science fiction kind of thing going on here. But the things they're doing, trying to kill Jesus, lying, conspiring against him, and the purposes of God. They're showing themselves not to be highly respected religious leaders. They're showing themselves to be slaves to sin that are trapped in darkness. So they try to fall back on their heritage, but it's a foundation that can't hold the weight and it falls apart. So where do they go next? They go to their religion. They go to the religion. This picks up in uh, verse 41. Look at it. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God Himself. So they up the ante here. Not just sons of Abraham. We are sons of God. The only father we have is God himself. 
And Jesus says to them, if, you were, if God were your father, you would love me. God come here from God. I'm not coming on. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. You want to carry out your father's desires. Jesus is hitting the same point as he did when they were reaching for their hearers. They reach for the religion here, and he says, look at your actions. Look at the fruit. Look at what is coming out of your heart. The devil's been a murderer and a liar since the beginning, and you are lying, and you are seeking your murder. You cannot, you cannot claim to be sons of God and do this. Look what your religion has led you to. Their religion has led them to leave God. <laughs> Ironically. Jesus is saying they can claim to be as religious as they want. They can pride themselves on being Bible. And this was the, the Pharisees, in our modern terms, they were the fundamentalists of that world. They took the Bible seriously. They memorized it to their heart. They took religious rules very seriously. They, they, they lived their day-in, day-out existence uh, limiting what they could do when they would tithe, they would literally take their spices out of their cupboard and cut out 10%. They were precise with how the devoutness were. In our modern terms, these are people that would get up every morning and have their hour-long quiet time with their journal and they would, they would memorize scripture. But Jesus is saying here, you have detached whatever religious stuff you're doing from the heart of God. And look what your religion has done. You can be as religious as you want to be. You can take the Bible and your religion as seriously as you want to. But at the end of the day, you've shown yourselves to be true trees that bear rotten fruit. Now, Jesus is saying that he's not just saying this to antagonize. He's not just, again, trying to score points against his opponents. The entire conversation is Jesus shining a light. He's opening the door. He's removing a blindfold. He's saying, don't depend on your religious sensibilities. In the same way, don't reach back to your heritage to grab hold of. Don't reach back to your religion. Because that's just led you to be people who are plotting the murder of the Son of God. This is a dead-end street. Now, friends, this is a warning to us, I think, as well. If our idea about what our religion is, if our idea about what Christianity is, or I'm a Presbyterian, Presbyterianism, or whatever it is, if our idea of what religion is leads us to the same types of things, then it's just getting in the way. We're missing the heart of God. If we can use our religion to justify us mistreating other people, conspiring against them, reaching for power, etc., etc., then we've missed the heart of God. And we're just using our religion like the Pharisees did here in this passage. And to find Jesus, we might have to toss our ideas about what our religion is aside. Now, that doesn't mean I'm not saying throw out our creeds. No, I'm not saying throw out the Bible. Not at all. That's the foundation of who we are. But I'm saying if we get it disordered, if we miss the heart of God but we keep all the trappings, then the trappings are just going to keep us trapped. That's all religion does apart from us seeing the heart of God revealed to us in Jesus Christ. In that case, our religion actually might be the way standing, the, the thing standing in the way from us seeing the light of Jesus. That's what happened here. Because the truth is, religion, apart from the vision of the mercy of God, is the most dangerous and deadly thing in this world. History tells us that. You can think back to the Crusades, armies of Christians descending upon the Holy Land, justified in their idea. Um, it, in fact, <laughs> I, I shouldn't do this because it tears my heart up, but I went back and read sermons. We have sermons from uh, when preachers would preach to try to rally troops for the Crusades. 
And they would say, if you want to atone for your sin, then wet your sword with the blood of Amphibians. They were saying, you can be right with God by going and slaying these people that we are against. That's religion apart from the vision of the mercy of God in Christ. It's the most deadly and terrible thing in this world. It's like a kid playing with dynamite. And that's what Jesus tells them. Don't reach back to your heritage. Don't slink back to the darkness of that. Don't slink back to the darkness of your religion apart from the heart of God. What else do they appeal to? One more thing. They repent where they appeal to an ethnic pride. Not in a healthy way. They appeal to prejudice. This is closely related to the others. Look at verse 48. Look what he said to Jesus. Jesus answered him, Are we right in saying you're a Samaritan? Now, it was a common thing at the time of Jesus for people who were Jewish to not just be suspicious of people who were Samaritans. And they were, uh, historically, their cousins. They're very kindred to one another. But Jews and Samaritans loathed each other. Jewish people told stories about Samaritans, about their ancestors. And they said that they are, uh, they're... they're hesitate to say half-breed, but that's the kind of language that would be used in Harry Potter terms as mudbloods. But these were derogatory things. Jews so often would scoff at Samaritans, cannot take them seriously. And so what the Pharisees do here, Jesus is shining a light on their hearts with an open door for them to come to him, and they fall back on a deep-seated prejudice. On an identity that's built on not being Samaritan. They say, aren't you a Samaritan? We don't have to listen to you. Jesus isn't. Jesus is a Jewish. Just like they were. But we see they fall back on this ethnic pride. They classify however they want to do it. They classify Jesus as Samaritan. Meaning they don't have to listen to him. They also say he's a demon possessed. In essence they're saying that Jesus is the one who is wicked. Friends, that's what their religion, that's what their heritage, that's what their prejudice brought them to. The Son of God is standing in front of them, the light of God shining into the darkness of their world, offering their lives with an open door to freedom, and they accuse Him of being evil. That brings us to the end of this passage. Jesus has just responded to each of these attempts to retreat. He finally tells them, I'm not possessed by a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there's one who seeks it, and he's the judge. As Jesus saying, God will vindicate you. God will vindicate you again. And he says in verse 51, Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. Again, we see the open door here. See, where are all the places you try to justify yourself with lead? Jesus is saying, come to me, hear the words I've said, and turn, and you will find life. What did they say in verse 52? At this they exclaim, Now we know you're demon possessed. Abraham died, and so did all the prophets. Yet you say, Whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Now, there's something very interesting going on here because it's pretty key to the whole Old Testament and the promises that were built into the Old Testament. We talked about this a few weeks ago. A promise that God 
is greater than death, that God was at work to reverse the power of sin, the effects of sin in our world. This is pretty central and key to the Old Testament message, the scriptures that the Pharisees would have held at the very center of who they were. And that God is going to defeat death in its power. In other words, when Jesus arrived on the scene talking about his resurrection, it wasn't a new idea. It didn't come out of nowhere. But here, in their countering of Jesus, notice, they act as if death is the ultimate thing. They act as if it's preposterous that God was ever going to definitively deal with death. They act like God's purposes was just to give them a religion to, make, to follow, to make them feel good about themselves. As if that's what he was doing. So what does Jesus say? Verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Yet you are not yet 50 years old, they said. And you've seen Abraham? Verse 58. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was, I am. Verse 58, Jesus is doing something very intentional. He doesn't say, notice, before Abraham was born, I was. That would have just been an indication that he was older than Abraham, which would have offended him too, probably. This isn't Jesus bad at grammar or confused at past and present tense. This I am statement was calling back to God revealing himself to Moses in Exodus 3. The name Yahweh. One of the definitions, I am what I am. It's God saying, I am. I cannot be defined by anything outside myself. I am who I am. And when God revealed that to Moses, he wasn't just saying some philosophical idea about what God was. He was telling Moses, I am who I am, and I've made promises to Abraham that I'm going to fulfill. And you can have confidence because those promises are built on who I am, not on who you are. That's what God was saying to Moses in essence. So when Jesus says to them here, before Abraham was, I am, Jesus is making very clear to them who he is. He's not just Abraham. He's not just another prophet. He is God entering into this world to definitively deal with the power of sin and death. Jesus is using the same language here to make it as clear as he can. He's not just the guy with the big ego. He's not just another religious leader trying to elbow him out of the way. He's not just like a televangelist in our modern world who's just trying to con old folks out of money. He's not making false promises. He's God, I am, who has entered into his creation to free it from death. He's entered into our world where we try to build our lives on things like our heritage and last name. We try to build our lives on religion that leads us nowhere to a dead-end street. We try to build our lives on prejudice, and he's came to free us from that because those things cannot satisfy. They will fall apart. But sadly, here in this passage, the Pharisees, they couldn't hear these words. In fact, in the face of God, in front of them, they hardened their hearts. And they run him off. And we know where this goes. If we keep reading in the Gospel of John, this tension doesn't relax. It continues to build. It leads to the crucifixion of Jesus. And in the tragedy later on in the Gospel of John, which we'll get back to eventually, um, one of the most tragic moments in the Gospel of John is when Jesus is offered up to Pontius Pilate on trial. And Pontius Pilate is kind of confused. But he offers him to the people. And he basically says, this is your king. 
And the tragedy is when the people say, we have no king but Caesar. It's kind of like the ceiling of their, we've left God behind as our king. We have no king but Caesar. At that, part, at that point, their hearts have closed off to anything but political power. And it's this tragic moment of rejection. We reject God as our king. We have no king but Caesar. So this continues on. And it leads to the death of Jesus. But as Jesus said here, God vindicates sin and resurrection. God shows that what Jesus says here is true. And this morning, as we've looked at this passage, this morning, right now, God is speaking to us. Jesus is speaking to us. He shines the illuminating light of his grace into our world. The calling is not for us to live lives that we're, where we fall back on things like our last name and things like our uh, religious record or things like our uh, ethnic pride that we might have or our prejudice. Jesus is speaking to us now of a word of freedom and calling us. Hear this, friends. He's the light of the world. His truth will set us free, and that's the only truth that will set us free. And if he sets us free, we are free indeed. Not to be bound by anyone. He is God sent from God. The Son of God who has come to defeat all of his enemies, all of our enemies to reconcile us to himself. And that's what he's done. So this morning, this morning, let's not run back to the things that we try to use to justify ourselves, whatever they may be. And I'll just limit to the three things that the Pharisees run to here. Trying to build our lives on those things like trying to build a house on top of a sinkhole. We can build a, as beautiful of a house as we want, but the foundation is going to come loose and it's going to fall apart. And we can use all the nails we want to try to put it back together, but it's going to fall apart. But the good news is the foundation of the love of God for us in Jesus is a firm foundation. And He is building us. And so as we go out into this place, into our Mondays, tomorrow, as we go out into this place, into the rest of our lives, the calling to us is not to um, live in fear. It's not to try to go to these different avenues to build our identity or these different avenues to try to build our lives. It's us beginning to take the baby steps together, learning what it means to walk in the light of Jesus. Us learning what it means to live the reality that we are adored daughters and sons of God. Because that's true. Us walking Monday through Sunday. <laughs> every moment of our lives knowing that we are delighted in it by God. And that's proven in Jesus. So friends, let's not keep going to those fountains that can't satisfy us. Those fountains that are only going to poison our hearts. Let's come to Jesus who gives us true nourishment and will never, ever fail us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your light, the light of the world that has come to us in Jesus. I thank you that you were not, it's not only a light that reveals, and so our hearts are not just exposed for the reality of our sinfulness. That would be bad news. But that the light of Jesus is an invitation. So I pray that you would move upon our hearts that Daily we would come to you. Daily we would come to you in your life. That we would never fall back to chasing after the things that we so often try to build our identity on, that we try to build our confidence on, 
that you would move upon our hearts by your spirit to enliven us to walk as dearly delighted in daughters and sons of God who have seen the light of Jesus and are clinging to you in your freedom and teach us to trust that if the Son sets us free, that we are free indeed. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We come to the Lord's table, which is a time for us to not just passively hear the Word of God read or the Gospel of Jesus preached, but it's an opportunity for us to do this definite action to receive it. In a sense, think of it, we are internalizing, we are consuming uh, we are taking an action to own this grace that we have just heard. And so as we come to the Lord's table, Jesus uses these very simple things of bread and wine and grape juice to confirm to us in our senses that he is for us. And as we take these things in and our bodies are, in a sense, nourished by them, our, our hearts are even more nourished by Jesus. Here at this table, there is real grace as we depend upon him in faith. He offers himself to us. And this is, this is a nourishment for the way as we come to this table. This is a table that belongs to Jesus. And so it belongs to anyone he is welcomed and has come to him by faith. So if that describes you, this is for you. Please pretend. If you don't know what you think about Jesus, then I invite you to refrain. We don't want to make a hypocrite out of anybody. But no. Look at this and know depth of Jesus' love for us, that he would chase us not just to reveal sin, but to free us from it, which is what he's done in his cross and his resurrection. And that said, let's pray. Father, I thank you for this table. I thank you for these very ordinary, unimpressive things that you set apart for your incredibly impressive and extraordinary grace. I pray that as we consume this tiny piece of wafer of bread, as we drink this tiny bit of grape juice and wine, that you would confirm to our hearts. Seal to us the promise of your grace. Confirm to us that you are for us and all of who we are, that we might find our own. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. On the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. When he blessed it, he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you to take. same way after supper. He took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Take it and drink. Our generous God makes us a generous people. As part of his process of saving us, he conforms us to his image. He makes us like him. For that reason, we have an offertory prayer here. We don't pass a plate. Um, maybe we'll do that eventually. I'm not sure. We have an offering uh, box there on the table. You can give online. There are website on the app. Um, but as we pray for this, that God would take our gifts and he would multiply them, we're not just talking about money. That's too small of a thing. Of course, we live in a world where money is important. But this is God sweeping us up into his generosity to make us a generous people, not just with our checkbooks, but with our lives, with our words, with our hearts. And so I'm going to pray that he sets that apart, that he multiplies it for his purposes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the many gifts that you've given us for your 
providing for us, God. And as an act of worship, we return to you a portion that you've given to us. In cheerfulness, we don't give out of obligation. We don't give because we think we are loved more by you if we do give. But we give because we've been swept up into your generosity. And it's part of who we are now. So take the money that we've given. Take the time that we've set apart. Take the words that we speak. Take all of these things, Lord, and multiply them by your grace. And crown them with more grace. That your kingdom might spread. That more and more people might be added to the choir that sing your praises. Lord, that you might be glorified. And that Don and the people of Don in East North Carolina might be renewed in your grace. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I invite you to stand as we respond in song. Singing, come thou fount of every blessing.
the first line of the second verse, Here I raise my Ebenezer. And I've said this before, I always thought of it like Scrooge, Christmas Carol, like lifting up an old man named Ebenezer or something. What that actually means is a, a remembering stone. When God would do these great acts of redemption in the Old Testament, they would build what we would call statues. They were memorials. The reason I point that out right now is that's what the benediction is as we go. That's one of the reasons I use the same one every week from number six. Because this stands as a memorial for us. A thing that's meant to resound and echo in our ears and in our hearts as we go. God's intention as we leave to go with us. That we would walk day in, day out in the shining light of His love for us. So receive this benediction, this Ebenezer <laughs> from number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face toward you and give you His peace. Walk in His peace this week, my friends.